Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With President Biden's policy plans largely stalled in Congress, we're seeing the administration's priorities materialize in the regulatory world. Our government relations team dissects one of the most controversial rules proposed by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the new regulation surrounding reporting of climate impacts by public companies. The discussion covers how we reached this point, how the new rule will affect companies, what SEC enforcement of this regulation might look like, and potential challenges to implementation moving forward. This is Mark Baggage. I am a strategic advisor to Brownstein Hyatt, and we are bringing you another one of our podcasts. Today, we're going to talk about the proposed rules on the Securities and Exchange Commission related to climate change and how it impacts uh, companies and public companies and what that means uh, for the long term with regards to the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, with largely President Biden's policies stalled in Congress, there's a new push by the administration to push their priorities through regulatory process. Today, I'm joined with three of my colleagues from Brownstein Hyatt. First one is Caitlin Bradley, who is a former Financial Services Committee senior staffer and securities attorney and is technical command of all the regulatory, legislative and legal issues in the financial capital markets. Also, Travis Norton, who served as general counsel to the House Judiciary and Financial Services Committees, and as staff director to Tim Scott on the Senate Banking Subcommittee. And last, Emily Garnett, a former SEC investigative attorney, securities-focused litigator, helping companies and individuals navigate regulation, defending them in investigations. We have a great team here, a great group of folks that work at Brownstein Height that bring incredible depth of knowledge around this issue. And I'm going to start with Caitlin, because as you think about the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, you know, if you would have gone back maybe five years or even further, you would have never thought the two would be connected or this would be connected with climate change. So how did we get here and what is going on with the new regulations? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, So when I started on the Hill on the House Financial Services Committee back in 2014, One of the consistent themes we heard from the investor community, the larger asset managers, the smaller asset managers, and the sustainable investors was that they wanted more disclosures on ESG, environmental, social, and governance risks that apply to the public companies they're investing in. And we saw a lot of groups um, start up in the US and in the EU, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, UNPRI, GRI, so there was a big push, um, particularly in the EU, but also in the, EU, in the U.S., to get Congress and to get uh, relevant regulatory agencies to look at this information and provide it on a standardized basis for investors. So when the House flipped in 2019 and Chairwoman Waters took over, we already had a lot of these ideas in our back pocket. Um, and one of our first hearings that we had was on ESG in the capital market space. And so we talked about human capital management, diversity and inclusion, cybersecurity risks, and of course, climate. And we had bills on all of those. And eventually, um, as some of you all may know, they passed the floor in a package uh, last year on a, on a partisan basis, of course. Um, so we, you know, so we worked through a lot of those issues. And then when the Biden administration took control, they made it very clear that climate was a number one priority and that ESG was uh, writ large important to investors. And so 
you know, a lot of the ideas that have been percolating through Congress made its way into the Biden agenda, particularly for the SEC. The SEC, in part, took control under the Biden administration under then acting chair Allison Lee and asked for a request for comment on all of these climate disclosures and, the, and their ideas, the investors' ideas and the um, investor community's ideas on how the SEC should go about disclosing these to provide consistent comparable disclosures. So they received a lot of comments on that, which then set up the now chairman, uh, Gary Gensler, to finally issue a proposal, which we saw last month. So we've, uh, you know, we've been diving into this proposal, heard a lot from our clients and, and others in the community that will have to abide by these disclosures and those that uh, really want these disclosures. So, you know, we, it, it's, it's been a, a longer road than I think a lot of people are aware of, but, you know, here's where we're at now. Well, let me ask uh, Travis, you know, the climate rule is what people are hear a lot about. And I guess first comment I'd make, and maybe you could respond, and that is with or without legislation, the, the rules are moving. And uh, the climate rule is one of those issues. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what it does? But also, you know, I guess the comment, uh, these aren't going away. This is the new world we're living in. Yeah, I think that's right, Mark. Um, you know, from a Republican perspective, Republicans would critique this rule by saying that the government, United States government, is relying on the SEC through its traditional investor disclosure regime to accomplish uh, climate change goals of the administration that it cannot otherwise achieve. Many Republicans would suggest that if you want to affect climate change uh, policy, it ought to be done through regular order through the Congress. But I think because that is presently a very partisan issue. What the SEC has done is gone ahead and proposed um, a rule that would amend the disclosure regime for public companies, companies that are required to make disclosures under the securities laws. And these disclosures would generally fall into um, a number of categories. I'll just tick through some of the things that this rule does. Um, the first is that uh, a company would have to disclose climate-related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on the filer's business or consolidated financial statements. You know, that does bring in the existing definition of materiality, although it, I think it's phrased a little differently, reasonably likely to have a material impact. Um, but that one, so, you know, impact on, on financial statements. It would also uh, require disclosure of um, the actual and potential impacts of material climate-related risks on sort of strategy, business model, outlook, uh, you know, the way that a company thinks about how it uh, will evolve and adapt to changing circumstances. It also, um, it, you know, requires some disclosure about um, the board and management, um, specifically, you know, who are the board members of the company with expertise in uh, climate change and, and its impact on the company? Who in management is tasked with this function? And even to the level of detail, sort of how often do these people meet and discuss the impact of climate on the company's performance? Um, also disclosures about risk management, um, things like that. You know, and then um, I, I would add two more here. One is that um, a lot of companies over the past few years in response to investor demand have been publishing sort of 
what you might call feel-good type um, glossy publications that are not actually filed with the SEC, but are designed to promote you know, investor relations. A lot of investors do want to see companies address climate change and, and contribute to a greener economy. And so a lot of companies will publish information about how the company plans to transition to uh, more carbon neutrality or deal with climate-related risks. These things will now be brought into the ambit of the SEC disclosures, which um, uh, to give investors, you know, uh, purportedly to give investors more apples to apples sort of comparisons as things are standardized and measured in a uniform way. And then finally, there is this disclosure about greenhouse gas emissions, and these fall into three categories under the proposed rule. The first is what's called scope one. These are the company's uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, called direct, you know, how much greenhouse gas is the company emitting. Scope two is sort of indirect, they call it. Um, scope two emissions are related to the amount and source of the energy that the company consumes in its business, electricity, power, things like that. Scope three uh, is sort of the farthest removed from the central functions of the company. Um, scope three is sort of the greenhouse gas emissions along the value chain of the company. Um, so this would bring in greenhouse gas emissions data from your suppliers, uh, things like that, sort of uh, contract relationships that the company might have. And it tries to get a complete snapshot of all of the greenhouse gas emission that the company is responsible for. Um, you know, uh, and, and that is where a lot of the energy and focus has been uh, in the weeks since this has been proposed, because scope three uh, emissions are required to be disclosed if they are material but scopes one and two really don't have a materiality trigger. And I think a lot of the Republican critique has been centered around how that proposal diverges from traditional disclosure bases, which all kind of centered around materiality. So the rule is a very broad rule. It's hundreds of pages long and uh, certainly not uh, fit for a, a, a short podcast here. But what I think clients need to be aware of is that it's very, very technical and that the rule also requires assurance to be given for some of those disclosures, which means that the statements and the measurements have to be audited uh, by an auditing firm um, as well, um, which brings into uh, scope sort of the full weight of the securities fraud statutes and the uh, other private rights that are available to investors if a material misstatement is made in a disclosure. So I'll pause there. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I'm going to jump to Caitlin for a second here. You know, this, and Travis noted it as we deal with a lot of clients at, at Brownstein, you know, from a wide range of industries and the depth and knowledge of this is going to be critical, which this team here on the podcast has. But the, from the client's perspective, this is going to be a whole new area of uh, interest and concentration of staffing and other things that are going to be necessary to understand these rules. Maybe you could give kind of, you know, how, how do you see Travis sort of talk about those impacts to clients, but how do you see kind of the nitty gritty impact to clients we have, but, and people who might be listening that might suddenly go, 
you know, oh my, <laughs> I better be paying attention to this. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. I, you know, so I think a lot of companies are in a, a, a decent space already, as Travis alluded to, because they're already putting out reports on sustainability and their climate risks and aligning some of their reporting with the TCFD, which is what the proposal is based on. So there, there is a certain level of disclosure out there, but the uh, proposal itself goes further than the TCFD in certain respects and obviously would create a mandatory reporting regime that a lot of these companies are not familiar with. Um, and you know, when you think about this proposal, of course, it's going to have a huge impact um, on the oil and gas sector, on the energy sector, because those are the sectors that you traditionally think of when you think of climate risk, but applies, as Travis said, writ large to all public companies that have to file their registration statements and their annual reports with the SEC. And as, as Travis said, you know, it's not just scope one and scope two emissions that they're going to be have, having to disclose. It's also to a certain extent, scope three. And scope three is basically anything in your supply chain. So you're looping in potentially as part of your climate risk, not just your footprint as a public company, but all of those contractors and those other potentially private companies that you work with and what their risks are in the climate space. Um, I would note, you know, on scope three, it's not a mandatory disclosure per se. It's only if it's material, which is the current standard, or if it's part of their targets, a, a particular company's targets, or for example, net zero goals. So, um, you know, it's not necessarily per se that, that companies will have to disclose that, but there is a huge investor push to get those goals and those targets out there. And so I think companies will be, to a certain extent, potentially forced to disclose their scope three. So that's a, a, a big issue for companies right now because they're currently you know, not, not as steeped in those issues as uh, perhaps companies that are in the EU and, and potentially already looking at those. The other big part of it that companies are, are going to have to deal with is a lot of this, uh, there's a you know a certain amount of disclosures that have to be reflected in the audited financial statements as part of their line items, and the problem there is you know of course there is a certain element of climate risk that impacts financials, um, but the way that the SEC has proposed this, what they want from companies is to say sort of in a vacuum what's the direct financial uh, impact of a particular line item. And it doesn't give them the chance to explain why. So if you're looking at, for example, a company that uses gas as fuel as opposed to other renewable energy sources, they have to disclose you know, what that risk is, what that expense is, but they aren't also able to tell investors, but we're doing that because it's less expensive than other renewable energy sources, and this is saving you money in the long term. So I think um, you know that's that's going to be a big problem. I think there's also some some pieces in there where you have reliance on a third party, independent third party, to give you assurances, and there it's unclear at this point whether even the folks that are out there preparing uh, current sustainability reports that that maybe would qualify have the bandwidth to do this for all of these public companies. So I think trying to figure out who these independent third parties are how to craft these financial statements, how to understand scope three and everybody in your supply chain and get the information you need to report. It's just going to be a lot for people to, for companies to have to grapple with going forward. 
Mark, I, I would just add one thing, which is um, Caitlin's exactly right that the scope three disclosures are likely to become almost mandatory, even though there is that materiality trigger. There's language in the proposed rule that uh, if it doesn't itself compel companies, it comes right up to the line of compulsion of requiring companies to describe uh, the sort of the method by which they reach a determination whether scope three is material or not material. I think the rule takes a very, proposed rule takes a very skeptical approach to those who would say that scope three emissions are not material by asking for some additional qualitative information about how the, how the company has made that determination. Um, so it's just another way to uh, add to the, the weight of the scope three disclosure. I'm going to ask Emily a question. You know, you were a former SEC investigator. You understand litigation. I know as a former senator from Alaska in a resource state, you know, every time you mention oil and gas or mining or beginning industry in Alaska, you get sued by somebody about something. And, you know, here we are about to put uh, potentially extensive rules with some question of how you do actually fully report them. You know, what's the enforcement mechanism and is there going to just add more litigation by third party groups that may enter into the equation or is it that even allowable under the rules? How is this going to be enforced and, and what will trigger some of that from your perspective? Yeah, thank you, Mark. I think it's an excellent question and observation and coming at it from the perspective of former staff, the way that I see the SEC starting to roll this out is probably going to be analogous to how they approached cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings in the sense that it was very progressive. First, there was the Dow report, which warned entities, here's the sort of offerings or representations that could run afoul of the securities laws, including the adopted new rules. And then little by little, finding these kind of important test cases to be able to establish a violation. So, you know, I think progressively we will start to see tag on claims of, of litigation. One could think of the Volkswagen admission scandal as kind of the perfect example of where you would have clear misrepresentations to investors. You would have fraud charges under the 33 and 34 Act. And then on top of it, you would have a violation of this adopted rule. Um, and then I think eventually you may see standalone cases and investigations by the SEC. It will be curious to see if they create a specialized unit. One could imagine someone with a general securities litigation background coming in and not feeling equipped and not having the resources to be able to tell whether or not companies have violated the rule, have made clear disclosures as it relates to scope one and two. And, um, you know, as it relates to this, the scope three, along with the safe harbor, making sure that there have been accurate and clear disclosures. Chair Gensler's message to Wall Street, he was interviewed on CNBC two weeks ago was very much this is an attempt at harmonization. You're already seeing companies like Apple, Nike, Amazon making these disclosures. Now it will do a service to public companies so that they know when and how they need to make these disclosures and what information needs to be included. And investors will be able to quickly 
access that information. I think I tend to be a little bit more skeptical about the <laughs> impetus of the rule. And I think everybody does get a sense that it is political. The former chair of the SEC, Chair Clayton, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that made exactly that point. So that is a long way of saying I think that the SEC is going to be aggressive once the rule is finally phased in. The first components are phased in in 2024. Um, and I think you're going to really see sort of a political mission-making effort here to signal to the market that um, even if investors aren't uniformly caring about climate disclosures, they should, and they should be asking public companies these tough questions as to how they're going to address climate change going into the future. Emily, to expand on that, will shareholders, and as you call them investors also, but kind of the combination, will they have recourse if they don't believe SEC is doing their job and and enforcing the disclosure? Will they have opportunity and will it be also potential for third party groups unrelated to as an investor and or the SEC to be able to bring litigation? Yes, very good question. So because it is a um, modifying the rule as proposed is modifying the materiality standard, investors would have a private right of action under the PSLRA um, or the private um, securities laws that dictate investors' ability to bring lawsuits in their own name, uh, separate and apart from the SEC, being able to sue entities. I think the biggest question for me along those lines is how the SEC is actually going to seek relief from entities if they are found to have violated the rules, what sort of penalties they will be assessing. One of the um, commissioners, Commissioner Purse, who's the, the only surviving Republican commissioner on the commission at this moment, she's frequently made the point in enforcement proceedings that it seems very unfair to penalize public companies because at the end of the day, the shareholders or the investors are the ones that have to pay the, pe- the fees or the penalties So in this event, you could imagine she would make the very sort of same argument here to the extent that a company hasn't accurately disclosed, you know, its climate related risks or its emissions or whatever violation it's charged and and, and found to have um, committed. At the end of the day, the company is going to be the one that has to pay those penalties. How is that really serving the investor base? So is this more a rule that's a signaling sort of messaging rule that won't be enforced with penalties or, you know, are we going to see some really penalties going forward? And likewise, it relates to the private securities litigation front. There is a cottage industry of plaintiff's attorneys that file um, basically nuisance suits as it relates to public company disclosures. We see it frequently in the mergers and acquisition space. I really hope that this doesn't become yet another tool for them to be able to file these these complaints and hope that they survive a motion to dismiss in order to draw out a nominal settlement from the companies and pay their attorney's fees. So I think that stands to be seen. It's a good question. So here we are at the close to the end of the podcast, just have a couple more minutes left. I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of what is next here. We have a rule that's uh, coming down the pike. Uh, We have a period of comment that's going to be proposed. I'd love to hear what you think the next steps are, but also not only from the administrative side, but legislative side, if Congress switches 
in November, what happens and what can Congress do or not do? So let me uh, start with Emily and go around the table from there. Perfect. So why don't I address the comment period? The comment period will remain open from 30 days after publication in the Federal Register or 60 days after the date that the rule was published on the SEC's website, whichever period is longer. And the the rule was published on the SEC's website on March 21st. It hasn't actually been published in the Federal Register. So there is still a period of time to make comments and Brownstein is fully equipped to help our clients do that. And and then in terms of actual what will happen um, if we do see a change up in Congress with midterm elections, why don't I turn it over to Caitlin to address that? Sure, sure. Thanks, Emily. Um, Well, before I do, I, I would say that we are all sort of expecting and I think the SEC is expecting this as well, that the rule get challenged in court as soon as it's finalized. And so we're talking, you know, once the comment period closes, at least four to six months for the SEC to delve into the comments and start writing the final rule, and then probably a suit immediately by an affected company or a trade association uh, representing their companies, which will seek to then stay the rule. So, um, you know, we'll we'll be expecting that as well. In terms of Congress, if the House and or Senate flips, I think what what we'll likely see is obviously a lot of oversight on behalf of the Republicans um, into the process that the SEC constructed around crafting this rule, inviting up Chair Gensler to talk about it and, and justify what was proposed. And then also to a certain extent, trying to get potential riders um, or legislation in in certain must-pass vehicles like an omnibus or even a potential Congressional Review Act where they're basically seeking to overturn the rule and preventing the SEC from enforcing it further. The only holdup there is obviously uh, it is a keystone, as I mentioned earlier, of the Biden administration. So there's uh, little doubt in, in at least my mind that President Biden will sign anything that contains a provision preventing the SEC from going forward with this rule. However, obviously we could do a, um, that Congress could do, provided it has the votes, a override of the veto. Um, but that seems uh, unlikely at this point, but we'll see, we'll see what we find out after the midterms. So a lot more ahead of us on this. And again, the merging of SEC and climate change is on its way. And a lot of rules and regulations that the companies need to pay attention to. And again, Brownstein Hyde has an enormous depth of knowledge, as you've heard today on the podcast. I just really want to thank uh, my guests, my colleagues, uh, Caitlin, Travis, Emily, for joining us today on another podcast by by Brownstein Hyde. And uh, appreciate all the time. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.